Good evening. Glad that you're with us again for Relational Theology number six. We're going to talk about the Davidic Covenant and captivity. Uh, as we've been seeing in the last few weeks, we're talking about uh, God's progressive, continuing, growing revelation as he's re- restoring truth and understanding of who he is to a people who had fallen away. And we've seen that in a series of covenants. And now we're going to talk about the Davidic covenant, which is covered in 1 Samuel and through to Second Chronicles, and then some literature in Psalms and Proverbs. But we're going to start this uh, evening in 1 Samuel chapter 8, <clears throat> and I'm going to read from verse 1 to 7, and then 22. We'll start there. It says, Now it came to pass, when Samuel was old, and he made his sons judges over Israel. So we're seeing the beginning of the transition from judges to a king. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you're old. <laughs> and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. In verse 22, so the Lord said to Samuel again, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, go and go to a city. So it's interesting that Samuel, a prophet, sets up his sons as judges. So we're seeing that transition from the the judges, uh, but he sets up his, his sons as judges, but they were dishonest, which is very interesting because it follows directly the story of Eli and his sons, who were priests. And Eli had his sons became priests, but his sons were also dishonest. And that's the very reason why God raised up Samuel in the first place. So here we have Samuel following along the very same path. And the people, maybe justifiably, I don't know, but upset at the fact that his sons were dishonest, said, give us a king. And it seems that God allows them the choice. He says, heed their voice and do what they say. So it seems like he's allowing them the choice to choose a king. In fact, over in 1 Samuel 12, in verse 1, we see, And Samuel said to Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you said to me, and have made a king over you. Verse 13, now here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. So they chose a king. God allowed them to do that. They picked a king. Samuel told them what was going to happen. And the bottom line is they made a bad choice. (laughs) And he didn't follow after God. He didn't obey God's word. He wasn't a man after God's heart. And so in Chapter 13, when God is rejecting Saul, who had been the king, in verse 14, he says, 
Now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be command over his people. So God's choice was different. God's choice was a man after his own heart. We see over in Acts chapter 13 and verse 44. Sorry, verse 22. Where am I? Verse 22, and when he removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And so he's, God's choice is a man after his own heart. In fact, we see in, we go along to 1 Samuel 16, in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing as I have rejected him, from reigning over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go, I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. So he's provided his own king. It's interesting that we, when we understand that God's choice wasn't someone to replace him, but someone to embody him, to partner with him what we see is the restoration of relationship and rulership is now seen in a man. Previously it was in a nation, now it's in a man. A man after God's heart, and then God promises a continuing and enduring kingdom. And he declares a covenant with him, or promise with him about that kingdom in Second Samuel chapter 7. And from verse 11, since the time I've commanded judges to be over my people of Israel and I've caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house or a building or a family or a kingdom. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of, of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. The throne, your throne shall be established forever. God's establishing this uh, eternal kingdom based on this man who is after God's heart. And we see that this is a pr prophetic picture of Jesus. In Luke chapter 1. It says, if I can find it, from verse 31 of Luke chapter 1. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus and he will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom and of his kingdom there will be no end. So this prophetic picture, David is a prophetic picture of <clears throat> the kingdom. Relationship with God and rulership 
the kingdom of God embodied in a person that is a type of Jesus which is to come. I just love the word of God. I love the, the uh, depth of what God has in it and how he goes from there. And we're going to uh, turn over to Mary for a moment to show us some of that in the comparison of Hannah and Mary. Hi, everyone. I was trying to read big chunks of scripture like uh, Russ suggested to us, and I got stuck on 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. But I found it interesting that the beginning of all the biblical literature around the Davidic covenant starts with a beautiful story of a godly woman, Hannah, and that the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, which was the initiation of the new covenant, begins with another godly woman, Mary. Good name, eh? I find the word of God just so astonishing that God could fashion such exquisite similarities over multiple generations of time. It's extraordinary. Isn't it incredible that there's so much to dig for in the word of God? I kind of just wanted to whet your appetite to take time to mine the depths because there's so many hidden treasures. Um, I won't go into too many of them, but I did find eight similarities between Hannah and between Mary. So first of all, Hannah, her name means favor or the grace of God. Though she was called favor, her name was favor, she felt like she hadn't experienced favor. Somehow she'd not had a personal encounter. Her personal condition was barren, which in her day meant unfruitful, uh, forgotten and forsaken, or even abandoned by God. She was reviled and ridiculed by the other woman, <laughs> the other wife, and it drove her to seek God. So she who was named favor had to find favor. And Mary, in Luke one twenty-eight, she is addressed by the angel Gabriel as highly favored one. In one Luke 1 verse 30, she has found favor. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And just like Hannah had to face the ridicule and reviling of the other woman, Penina, uh, Mary had to face the ridicule and reviling of society, a child out of wedlock. So for us as Christians, you know, we've received mercy. Hebrews 4.16 says, Come boldly to the throne of grace, that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's like when we come to that throne of grace, we've received God's riches at Christ's expense. But we also, when we receive the mercy, there's a grace that we need to find to help in time of need. And that's that supernatural enabling of God. And I just felt that actually to share that Hebrews reference because I feel like some of you might actually be needing to find grace um, in your days, that supernatural enabling of God every single day in this difficult time that we're all facing. We know that we've all received mercy, but daily we need to come to God and receive that grace. So Hannah, named favor, found favor. Mary, highly favored one and found favor. Um, Hannah also seeks the Lord. She prays and encounters the Lord of hosts, it's the first time he's ever mentioned in Scripture. Um, that means the Lord of the heavenly armies, Yahweh Sabbath, God of the universe and ruler of the armies of heaven. 
And in that same way that she had a heavenly encounter, um, Mary did as well when the angel appeared to her. Secondly, or thirdly, um, Hannah believes Eli's blessing. 1 Samuel 1, 17-18 The God of Israel, grant your petition you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor. So she went her way, and her face was no longer sad. And in verse 19, she worships, just showing that she had to believe what was spoken to her by God's man. And also, it was the same with Mary. She had to believe. Luke 1, 38 and 45, Mary said, Behold, the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And then, Blessed is she who believed the things told her by the Lord. With Hannah, it was a miraculous conception in that she who was barren became fruitful by the power of God. And with Mary, it was a miraculous and immaculate conception. A virgin became pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hannah dedicates her son, her firstborn, Samuel, to the Lord of hosts, to the priesthood. And um, we know that Mary and Joseph in Luke 2.22, brought Jesus to Jerusalem at eight days old to present him to the Lord, to dedicate him, Jesus, who was to become our great high priest. And then another similarity is that both Hannah and Mary sing a beautiful song. and They both have a bit of prophetic nature in their songs. For Hannah, 1 Samuel 2.8, she said, He wrote, raises the poor from the dust to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. And then 1 Samuel 2.10, He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Which is prophetic, I think, of David, but it's also prophetic in a bigger sense of the coming Messiah. And then Mary's song is reminiscent of Hannah's song. There's lots of similarities between those songs, so you might want to take time in your own time to look at those similarities You can look at the character of God and even how these women see each other. But in Mary's song, it's prophetic in nature as well. Luke 151, he has shown strength with his arm. So he has shown is he appoints, he establishes, he executes. And strength is the word kratos, which is mighty deeds. With his arm of strength, he shows power in the reigning authority, dominion and kingly kingdom authority. In other words, he is bringing about the reigning authority. And then I was going to end with the verse that Russ started with. (laughs) The angel Gabriel told Mary in 131 to 33, you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Back to you, darling. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you, Mary. Uh, It's good to see the, the depth of the word, but also the prophetic picture of a king that would rule and of his kingdom there would be no end. In fact, Isaiah... 9 says of the increase of his kingdom there will be no end which is interesting so we see that the picture of the king 
But we also see something in this section of scripture that we're talking about, the Davidic, Davidic covenant of the building of the temple. And it's something of, again, the dwelling of God, which was had been the tabernacle, is now the temple. And it seemed like this wasn't God's plan, but it was. Uh, in 1 Kings 6, 3, uh, Solomon builds a temple, but it starts listing the vegetable in front of the sanctuary of the house was 20 cubits long across the width of the house. The width of the vegetable extended 10 cubits. And if you look at it, it's actually double the size of the original tabernacle. Now you could think that that was just something of Solomon's wanting to build bigger and better, but he didn't start the plan. Over in 1 Chronicles 28, we see that it was actually God who gave the plan for the temple. 28 verse 9, David saying to Solomon, As for you, my son Solomon, know the Lord your God and serve him with a loyal heart. This is telling him what he's going to do. Understand all the intents of the thoughts. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. And he says, Consider now, verse 10, For the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. And David gave his son Solomon the plans for the vegetable, its house, its treasuries, its upper chambers, its inner chambers, and the place of the mercy seats, and the plans for all that he had by the Spirit of the courts of the house of God, of the Lord, and all the chambers. Verse 19, All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the works of these plans. So David wanted to build a temple, a place for God to dwell. God gave him the plans, and they said, You're not the guy to do it. Your son's going to do it. And so Solomon did. And he built it according to the plans that God had. So why did God increase the size? I think it's indicating an increasing relationship. Not just the depth, but an increasing size. I think we're going to see this is prophetic also of the church, which becomes the temple of God. We'll see it in just a little bit. But that it's increased far beyond just the nation of Israel. Well, God had chosen Israel to reveal himself to, his plan was always much bigger. His plan was always all the nations. And we see that God begins to enlarge that. So go with me back to 1 Kings chapter 8. You see the same thing in, in Chronicles, which is a repeat, but this is where uh, the ark's brought in the temple. They've finished the temple, they furnished it. Uh, Solomon got all the people and the elders together. And verse four, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. And they brought them all up. So again, they're, they're establishing the temple as the dwelling of God, the place of God. Uh, as the tabernacle had been, the temple will be. Verse 10, it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. We see that again that we saw when they had built the tabernacle. According, according to the plan that God had given Moses, they built it. They didn't make it up. They built it as God had said, and they built this temple as God had said. And when they did it God's way, there was something of the glory of God that was poured out. There was something of the, uh, the presence of God that, that was manifest there. Uh, I think it's just a wonderful picture because I think this is a type 
of the church. And there's a declaration when we build the church according to God's pattern, not our own. Then we see something of God's glory poured out. We see something of God's heart released and his presence manifest in us, not only individually, but together. Uh, Over in chapter 8, sorry, I was in chapter 8. I read verse 4 and 10, but but, uh, over in 27, Solomon's prayer after building and dedicating the temple, he says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens can't contain you. How much less this temple that I have built? He's again acknowledging the greatness of God. God's so much greater than we comprehend him to be. Heaven and the heaven of heavens, the highest of heavens, can't contain you. God's so much bigger. How much less this temple? God's not restricted. But he says, yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today. That your eyes may be open toward this temple day and night, toward the place of which you said, my name shall be there. And you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray toward the place, here in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. When anyone sins against a neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then here in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then here in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to your fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then here in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people, Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain in your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. When there's famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hand toward this temple, then here in heaven you're dwelling and forgive and act and give to everyone according to his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the heart of all the sons of men. Wonderful uh, promise in that he's praying and God responds to that prayer. And what we're going to see is that that's essential because this is a type of, of the church later on as we seek God individually and together. But, well, in 1 Corinthians 3.17, it says, don't you know you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? You being plural, you all. And 1 Corinthians 6, 19, don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So there's something of God's presence, God's abiding 
within us individually when we come to the new covenant and within us corporately together uh, that God abides in us. And uh, it's important that we understand that, that God will hear because the next part of the story is that they didn't fulfill the covenant. They did not. They, they messed it up. And we see in the end of Second Chronicles, the end of this section uh, from Second Chronicles 36. And I'm going to read uh, verse 6 and 7. Verse 6, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in the temple at Babylon. This is uh, the last king. Uh, and then he sets up a servant ruler. And verse 11, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God, did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. So Jeremiah is giving them God's warning about what will happen. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more. They rebelled more and more. According to all the abominations of the nations, defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on the people and on his dwelling place. So he's sending prophets, Jeremiah being one of them, giving them warning, but they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God rose against his people till there was no remedy. They just kept rebelling and rebelling and rebelling to the point where God had had enough. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed the young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and no compassion on young man or virgin or the aged or the weak he gave them all into his hand and all the articles of the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and his leaders. All these he took to Babylon. Then he burned the house of God. This temple that had just we've just been talked about was destroyed, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all his palaces with fire and destroyed all his precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, till the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So all of a sudden we see that they didn't fulfill the covenant. All that God had done for them, all that he had revealed to them, they fell down on their part. And what happens is that they're taken captive. And it, and it says here it was a 70-year period. We see that confirmed 
in Jeremiah 25, 17, that they were taken captive for 70 years. Uh, and that that time, all the, the rulers, all the, the intelligent young men, all those who were skilled and taught were taken away. The house of Israel, I mean, the, the temple was destroyed. The wall was broken down around the city. It was actually just totally devastated. It was a 70-year period that was from about 610 to 540 BC. Now that's a little bit questionable about exactly when. Uh, they believe that uh, the men who were taken away was somewhere around 605, but it's somewhere around that period. It's about a, a 70 year period in there that goes a little bit longer when you realize that while they were taken captive over a period of time, they didn't all come back at the same time. And so it goes for this little time. And so what you see is that about 610 BC, God's had enough and Israel's taken captive into Babylon. And then about 539, Cyrus, who is a different kingdom comes and overthrows Babylon. Uh, Isaiah 45 speaks of him in advance but he allows some to come back in 538. Zerubbabel returns with a band of people and begins rebuilding the temple. And so it's about uh, 70 or so years. But in the process of rebuilding the temple, they get discouraged. And you have the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah stepping in and the glory of the latter house being greater than the glory of the former. Uh, now the temple was nothing in the natural as great as the temple under built by Solomon. But I think it's again referring to something in the future, which is the church and the kingdom. So even though they started it in 538, the temple wasn't actually completed till about 515 BC. And then you see another wave about 458, Ezra returns with another group uh, Ezra was a spiritual reformer. And so while they started to build the temple, they actually hadn't still embraced the the plans and the, the purposes of God. And so you see that about 458. Why is that important? Because I think there's some spiritual implications of the captivity. God was very slow to anger. He put up with a lot. He was willing to forgive. He got to a point where there was no remedy. And uh, he eventually had to deal with them according to their lack of faithfulness. Uh, but there's some spiritual implications of that, I think, that often we miss. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel was one of those young men who had been taken captive uh, about 605 BC, and he, the rest of his life he spent in Babylon. Uh, and he was still there when Daniel chapter 10 says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So the, the Persians had come and they'd actually overthrown Babylon. And Daniel was one of the leaders there, but at, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name actual name was Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long. And they understood the message and the understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. And then he talks about 
his mourning and uh, his fasting is really what that word is. And on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with gold. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me. I can understand that. <laughs> I think I'd be a bit overwhelmed by seeing this guy whose eyes are like torches of fire and his arms like burnished bronze and his face like burl and I mean, it just would be overwhelming. And no strength remained in me for my vigor was turned to fra frailty <laughs> and I retained no strength. So basically he just crumbled. And I heard the sounds of his words. Well, I heard the sounds of his words. I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Here's we see Daniel so overwhelmed by this presence that he just has absolutely no strength to stand. He just falls in a heap on the ground and his face is in the ground. And suddenly a hand touched me and made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. So now he's no longer his face on the ground, he's on his hands and knees. Said to me, oh Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For I've now been sent to you. While he's speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. So he, he's now standing, but he's still trembling. So we see him lying down on his hands and knees and trembling, and now on his feet trembling. He said to me, do not fear, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. And he spoke these words to me. I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And suddenly one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips, then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before my Lord because of this vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I've retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of man touched me and strengthened me. He said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you, be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened. I love that. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened. He said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he said, do, not, do you know why I have come to you? Now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. When I've gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I tell you, there is, as is noted in the scripture of truth, no one upholds me except Michael, your prince. I want to just talk briefly about the implications of this captivity. Because during that time, that 70-year period, while Daniel's actually having this vision, we see two principalities who are set against the, uh, the plan or the kingdom of God. 
two principalities here, the Prince of Persia and the Prince of Greece, that are actually fighting against the plan of God. Messenger was sent, but was withstood for 20, 21 days uh, for the, the three weeks that he was, was fasting. From the very first day, he was heard. And so we see that this somehow there's this battle in the, the spiritual realm, in the heavenlies, where uh, Michael, who is the prince of Israel, comes and he's doing battle with these princes uh, that are trying to withstand the purpose of God. Somehow, in this 70-year period, when Israel was taken captive and had gone into Babylon, there was something opened up, I think, in the, the heavenly realm that allowed these princes to gain an ascending. They all of a sudden had a greater strength to withstand uh, in that period of time. Now, what are those? I think that the prince of the kingdom of Persia is actually religion. I think these are demonic principalities that are set against the kingdom of God. Why do I think it's religion? Because in this 70 year period, which I told you was about 610 to 540, but if you you extend it to the building of the temple, 610 to about 515, you see that every major religion in the world either began or was written down in that same time frame. That's more than a coincidence. Buddha lived from 570 to 496 BC, the founder of Buddhism. Confucius, 551 to 479 BC, the founder of Confucianism. Lai Tzu, the founder of Taoism. They don't really know, but they say he lived sometime between 600 and 400 BC, so right in this time frame. Hinduism, which existed before that in oral tradition, was written down somewhere between 600 and 500 BC. The Japanese religion of Shintoism, was, which was also much older, was written down again somewhere between 500 and 300 BC. So you get these major religions, with the exception of Islam. Mohammed lived about 1,200 years later, 570 to 632 AD, but in the same general area. So I think what we see is this principality, which is set against the the kingdom of God is actually religion. It's a demonic substitute, a counterfeit. Jesus in John 8, speaking to the, uh, the Pharisees who had taken the plan of God and they tried to make it something it was never intended to be, a religious way to reach to be, be justified rather than to make us aware that we need justification. He says to them, verse 44 of John chapter 8, you are of your father the devil. They're basically saying, you were born from the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there, no, there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a father, he is a liar and the father of lies. He's basically saying religion, I believe, is demonically inspired as a stronghold, a principality that is set against the advancing of the kingdom. But then in Daniel it says, and the prince of Greece will come. 
I believe Greece represents philosophy. And philosophy is basically the concept that I can know truth through human reasoning. Religion is basically I can reach perfection. I can be justified in myself. I can be good enough on my own. But philosophy is I can know truth through human reasoning. Again, I don't need God. Wasn't that the very rebellion that we've talked about all along from the garden through the, uh, the fall of the Davidic covenant was this rebellion against God. They hardened their hearts and they transgressed against God. They rebelled against God. I don't need God. I can do it on my own. Colossians 2.8. Paul writes uh, that beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to God, this idea that I don't need God, I can figure it out on my own. I can know truth through human reasoning or I can reach perfection or become justified or perfect through my own efforts. I don't really need God. It's still the, the, the rebellion that's at the heart of sin. Now, why is this important? Because both of these will come into play later when we talk about the advancement of the kingdom. Both religion and philosophy have been the opposition. They've been the counterfeit of the devil that have been the opposition that leads people astray. They're a lie. They're, they're spawned by the father of lies. And we're gonna see as we look throughout history at the, the advancement of the kingdom and the battle that, that we face, that these are the two basic principalities that we're dealing with, that of religion and philosophy. They're the counterfeits of the enemy, and we see them there during this 70-year period of time when the nation of Israel, God's people, are in captivity. They've, they've broken the covenant. The covenant's ended now. God finally had to, to say, it's enough is enough. This covenant is no longer. It's, it's finished. They've given up the land. They've given up the, the kingdom, the rulership. They've given up the presence of God. Except there's this hope that if they'll pray, if they'll turn. And tied in with this are glimpses of a new covenant. This very same Jeremiah who speaks about this, this uh, captivity, this turning away, this hardening of heart in the midst of his writing in verse 31 of chapter 31 of Jeremiah. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. They had destroyed the covenant and finished, yet there's this glimpse, this hope, of something greater, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. We'll talk about that next week because that uh, introduces this greater concept of God's heart, his, his faithfulness, his love for us. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, says the Lord. I will put my 
law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. So even though there was this destruction, this this uh, failing on their part, this destruction of the temple and this captivity and, and giving up the land, God holds out this hope for a new covenant, which was always his plan. A new covenant that extends relationship and rulership to every believer. Not just a few, but in essence, makes it available to the whole world. Back to the covenant with Abraham, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Even though they messed it up, God's plan was bigger. And we're gonna see that restored as we look at next week's The New Covenant. We're finally getting to the really good part that I'm excited about. But I just want you to, to take a note of that, that they did not keep the covenant. That I was a husband to them. God's part was that he loved them as a husband loves his wife. When it said, we read earlier uh, in Exodus, when it says that uh, he's a faithful God, keeping covenant. Faithful is a, a relational word. Doesn't just mean that he provides, it means that he's faithful to us. Like a husband is faithful to his wife. We make a vow, a decision that we're gonna forsake all others and give ourselves only unto this one. And we are faithful to that. God is faithful to his covenant. They fell apart. They messed it up. And God had to bring a judgment. But he's still faithful. And that's, the seeds of that are, are sown in here in the prophetic picture that about a new covenant that he's going to make. And we're going to see that next week. We get to the, the new covenant and all of that entails. All of this, a king and a kingdom that was a type of Jesus that looked like it was lost. Looked like the enemy had won, but God brings it in a way that they didn't expect. And we'll see that next week. A new covenant. Now we're getting to the good part. So I hope you're still with us. Read through this and, and see those prophetic glimpses that God puts in there. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that you're greater than we can comprehend you to be. The heavens and the highest heavens can't contain you. Lord, when it looked like your plan was totally lost, you were greater. And Lord, we know that that not only applies to your plan for the world, but it applies to your plan for each of us when we feel like your plan is lost, when we feel like we've messed it up so bad that there's no possibility of it being restored. You're greater and you make a way where there isn't a way. You're faithful. Lord, I just ask that you would pour your love upon your people as we're studying your word and that we'd have a 
excitement as we approach the new covenant and all of that entails as we see your faithfulness as a husband to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, God bless you. Let me encourage you, read that the new covenant we're gonna to get to next week, obviously, is the the literature or the canon around that is the whole New Testament. There's a whole lot there. There's a whole lot more than we can cover uh, in one week. There'll be a number of weeks as we talk about that and the kingdom. But let me encourage you, if you haven't finished reading through the uh, the Old Testament, finish it and then get into the, the New Testament. Uh, you've had six weeks. What are you waiting for? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, but it, it's it's very exciting. And so go ahead and, and get ahead in that and we'll see it next week. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.